All right, so this is part two of our study on the person of Christ. And this is a necessary sequel to last week's class. So last week we looked at the deity or the divinity of Christ, the truth that Jesus is fully God, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. And the main biblical passages of our consideration last week were John 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1. Those were kind of the main Christological passages on the divinity of Christ. Now, I said that today's class is a necessary sequel to last week's class because no class on the person of Christ is complete without considering the other aspect of the nature of Christ, namely his humanity. Last week, we talked about a certain theological term uh, which served as kind of a guide wire to keep us from falling off either side of the proverbial mountain as we attempt to descend the doctrinal peak of Christology. Does anybody remember what this theological term was? Alex? Love it. Hypostatic union. More importantly, does anybody remember what hypostatic union means? Anybody want to attempt to define it for us? Any takers? Hypostatic union. Yes, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man and will be so forever. And that will be one of our points this morning. So this is the clear teaching of Scripture. It's the confession of the universal church, as we saw last week in the Chalcedonian Creed. And it is the hope of every Christian that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So that's that guide wire that we hold to as we think about uh, this mysterious doctrine. So... Along with the doctrine of the Trinity, the Incarnation is one of, if not the most mysterious truths of Scripture. We will confess that from the outset. The second person of the Godhead entered into time and space, took on flesh, was born as a baby. We will be celebrating this Advent season shortly. And in that manger in Bethlehem, that infant child, every bit as human as you or I, every bit as helpless as any other newborn, That infant child was the eternal word of God. Or as John 1.14 says, the word of God became flesh. I think this is one of those doctrines that if you grew up in the church and you just kind of assumed this, uh, you know, understanding of, of Christ's personhood, that maybe we don't step back and marvel at it like we should. But the more you think about this, the more staggering it gets. What happened at this first Christmas is the most profound, most unfathomable truth of the Christian doctrine. But this unfathomable mystery of the Incarnation makes sense of everything else in the New Testament. So I pick up the words of Charles Spurgeon and commend them to you. Marvel at this mystery. The infinite became an infant. So let's marvel together and look at the humanity of Christ in Scripture. So we see the humanity of Christ clearly described in 1 John 4, 2-3. It's printed for you there in the handout. Good morning. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus' humanity in three broad categories. So first we'll look at the virgin birth. It's a great starting place. Then we'll look at the weaknesses and limitations of Jesus' humanity. 
and then finally at his sinlessness, and then we'll finish our time by looking at the necessity of Christ's humanity for the believer. Okay? So first off, the virgin birth. The clear teaching of Scripture is that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. So in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This Old Testament prophecy was then fulfilled in Matthew 1:18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Also, Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. <clears throat> and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then furthermore, in Matthew 1.24-25, <clears throat> it says that Joseph after, Joseph, after being visited by an angel in his dreams, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had born a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth is seen in two specific ways. First, the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Without the virgin birth, this is not clear. This was the way that God sent his son into the world as man. Now, some of the more imaginative among us might think of some other ways that Jesus might have come to earth, fully God and fully man, but none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. So, for example, if Jesus would have had two human parents, it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus could have been fully God, since his origin would have been like ours in every way. Or, on the other side of that example, had God united Jesus' deity and humanity in heaven and then sent him to earth without having been born, we would have had a hard time seeing how Jesus was fully human or even part of the human race. However, the virgin birth shows forth God's wisdom in revealing both the humanity of Jesus, born of a woman, and the deity of Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Second, the virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. So a few weeks ago, if you remember, we looked at the doctrine of sin in one of our classes in this systematic theology uh, course, <clears throat> and we saw the teaching of Scripture, which some have called original sin or inherited sin. What was that doctrine? Anybody remember that? What is the doctrine of original sin? <laughs> right, right, yep, You're, by nature of being born, you have inherited uh, the sin of your father, Adam, that's right. So all human beings have inherited legal guilt and a corrupt moral nature from our first father, Adam. But since Jesus was not conceived by an earthly father, the line of descent from Adam was miraculously interrupted. Jesus, the only human since Adam not descended from Adam, was therefore what? What's the implication of this?
Exactly. Because he was not descended from Adam, he did not inherit either the guilt nor the corrupted nature that has passed through Adam's line. So in that class on the doctrine of sin, I quoted John Calvin who said that we aren't sinners because we sin, rather we sin because we're sinners. And so applying this reverse logic to Christ, we see that Christ did not sin because he was not born with a sinful nature. And this seems to be the thrust of the angel Gabriel's declaration in Luke 135. So if you have your Bibles, flip to that briefly here. Luke 135. Someone read that for us, please, when you get there. Thank you, God. So do you follow the logic of the angel here? <clears throat> What's the flow of thought? What's the, if this is true, then this is true logic and Luke one thirty five. Nobody wants to attack the syllogism this morning. What what is the what does the angel say will be true of Mary? The very first statement. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, what follows? Yep, and then after the therefore, what? Yeah, so do you see the, the, the logic of the angel's statement here? Because the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and will conceive a son, therefore he will be called holy, right? So the child born to you, Mary, will be called holy because his conception will be the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Had Jesus had a human father, the line of descent from Adam would not have been broken and he would have inherited sin from Adam. <clears throat> but as it was the virgin birth, <clears throat> excuse me, the virgin birth means that Christ was fully human yet without the inherited sin from Adam. <clears throat> Any thoughts or comments, questions there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I think the I think the impetus of the overshadowing is that of the nature of conception. Um, one of the so one one of the natural questions that could flow out of this text would be to say, well, um, why didn't Jesus receive or inherit a sinful nature from her mother? And the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church would say, because Mary was sinless. But then that just begs the question of, well, why was Mary sinless? So you, you can't go back ad infinitum regressions. Um, so it's, you know, I think the clearer answer there is that the Holy Spirit's overshadowing, um, you know, maybe in, in a certain way, broke, kept Christ from inheriting the, the sinfulness of his mother. So that may be what's at stake there. Any other thoughts on that? It's a good question.
Yeah, that was, yeah. And that's also Paul's teaching in Romans 5 is that it comes through the line of that, yeah, from the line of Adam, that's right. Any other questions or comments there? Okay, we'll move on. When we, when we read the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, we see that he endured human weaknesses and limitations just as we do. First off, under this heading, Jesus had a human body, a body just like you and me. Luke 2.7 says he was born just as all babies are born. And then according to Luke 2.40, he grew through childhood to adulthood just as other children grow. Jesus became tired just like we do. For we read in John 4.6 that Jesus was wearied as he was with his journey and sat down beside the well in Samaria. He became thirsty and hungry, for when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. And this is according to John 19.28. Also, after he had fasted 40 days in the wilderness, we read that he was hungry, Matthew 4.2. He was at times physically weak, for during his temptation in the wilderness, after fasting for 40 days, at that time the angels came and ministered to him, Matthew 4.11, apparently to provide care for him, nourish, nourish him until he regained enough strength to come out of the wilderness. And then when Jesus was on his way to be crucified, the soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. This is from Luke 23.26, most likely because Jesus was so weak following his beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers, too weak indeed to carry the cross any further. And then the culmination of Jesus' limitation in terms of his human body is seen in the crucifixion. Luke 23, 46. His body ceased to live, ceased to function. His heart stopped beating. His brain activity ceased, just as ours does when we die. And so too, Jesus, the man, died. But Jesus also rose from the dead with the same physical body that died. Though this one was made perfect and was no longer subject to weakness, disease, nor death. So following Christ's resurrection, he demonstrated to his disciples that he does, does have a real physical body. Can anybody think of any examples of this demonstration? Okay. So this, the, scars, the scar from the spear on his side? Yeah, good. He ate the fish, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So all of these are examples or demonstrations. So when he appeared to his disciples, he said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus went out of his way to show his disciples that his body was, was real, that this was not, you know, a, a spirit or ghost. And then as Kellen pointed out, uh, he, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. That's Luke 24, 42. So one of the less familiar parts of the New Testament, unfortunately for many Christians, is the, the ascension, right? So Jesus ascended into heaven with the same resurrected human body. Thus he said before he left, I am leaving the world and going to the Father, John 16, 28. But here's the important point. The way in which Jesus ascended up to heaven was calculated. It was done to demonstrate the continuity between his existence in a physical body here on earth and his continuing existence in that same body in heaven. 
So just a few verses after Jesus had told his disciples, quote, a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have, we read in Luke's gospel that Jesus, quote, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and it was carried up into heaven, Luke 24, 50 through 51. And then similarly, we read in Acts, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, Acts 1, 9. So all of these verses taken together show that as far as Jesus' human body is concerned, it was like ours in every respect before his resurrection and after his resurrection, it was still a human body with flesh and bones, but now perfected. And I might add, the same kind of body that you and I will have when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead. So Jesus continues to exist in that human body in heaven as the ascension is designed to teach. Any thoughts or questions there? Yes. It's <laughs> good. It's a good question. Anybody else? Anybody want to answer that one? I don't know that Scripture gives us a specific answer other than to say that whatever his body was like after his resurrection, ours will be in that same way. His body is incorruptible. So in some sense, while it's not less than the physical body that he had before his resurrection, it's more than in certain ways. He's not bound by time and the same material restraints necessarily. Um, So it's similar, but obviously different in some ways. That's a good question. When, anytime you teach a class like this, you try to anticipate all the questions you're going to get, but there's no way to anticipate every single one. All right, so our second point for consideration on the topic of Jesus' weaknesses and limitations is that Jesus had a human mind. So Luke 2.52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom, which is to say that he developed mentally just as all children do. He learned how to eat, how to read and write. His dexterity was formed by picking up Cheerios. I mean, without Cheerios, how do kids learn motor skills? I don't don't know. He learned how to obey his parents, Hebrews 5.8 says. So this ordinary learning process was part of the genuine humanity of Christ. Jesus was not putting on nor feigning ignorance throughout his childhood. I think we sometimes think that he was maybe faking, you know, like, I'll pretend to be normal like these other humans so that they don't know who that I am until it's time. But he legitimately increased in wisdom and knowledge as he matured. Furthermore, we see that Jesus had a mind like ours when he speaks of the day on which he will return to earth. Anybody remember this statement? But of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Mark 13, 32, okay? So Jesus' mind had limitations of knowledge, his human mind. Our third point under this heading is that Jesus had a human soul and therefore human emotions, We see several indications in Scripture that Jesus had a human soul or spirit. So just before the crucifixion, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, John 12, 27. 
And then John writes a little bit later, when Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit. John 13, 21. So in both of these verses, the word troubled uh, from the Greek is often used of people when they are anxious or suddenly very surprised by danger. So Jesus experienced surprise, anxiety. Then there's the time in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is mulling over the suffering that he would soon face and he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Matthew 26, 38. So great was the sorrow of our Savior that he felt in that moment as though if it were to become any more intense, it would grieve him of life itself. Furthermore, we see that Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. He wept with sorrow at the death of Lazarus, a dear friend. He prayed with a heart full of emotion. For in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death and he was heard for his godly fear. Side note on that, the Puritan Robert Mary McShane said, if you could hear Christ interceding for you right now, you would be very encouraged. What's more, the author of Hebrews tells us that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. So, anticipating one of those questions that might arise, if Jesus never sinned, how could he learn obedience, you might ask? <clears throat> well, it seems that as Jesus grew toward, toward maturity, he, like all other human children, was able to take on more and more responsibility. The older he became, the more demands his father and mother could place on him in terms of obedience, and the more difficult the tasks that his heavenly father could assign him to carry out in the strength of his human nature. So with each increasingly difficult task, even those that involve suffering, Jesus' human moral ability, his ability to obey under more and more dif difficult circumstances, increased. We might say that his moral backbone was strengthened, by more and more difficult exercise, yet in all this development, he never once sinned. The complete absence of sin in the life of Jesus is all the more remarkable because of the severe temptations he faced, not only in the wilderness, as we referenced earlier, but throughout his life. And so the author of Hebrews affirms that Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 the fact that he faced temptation means that he had a genuine human nature that could be tempted. For scripture clearly tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil. If there's some cognitive dissonance in your head, we'll attempt to resolve that here later on. And then our fourth and final point under this heading is that Jesus was understood by others to be a human being. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, verse 53. Matthew 13, verse 53. Yes, 
Matthew 13, verse 53. Yes, you're welcome. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this passage indicates that those people who knew Jesus best, the neighbors with whom he had lived and worked for 30 years, saw him as no more than an ordinary man. A good man, no doubt, honest, fair, hardworking, but certainly not a prophet of God who could work miracles, and certainly not God in the flesh. So last week we considered the deity of Jesus, but we must not gloss over the full force of a passage like this. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, Jesus lived a life that was so ordinary that the people of his hometown that knew him best were amazed by the authority of his teaching and the miracles he performed. John tells us that even his own brothers did not believe in him, John 7, 5. Was Jesus fully human? He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even his own siblings did not realize that he was anything more than another upstanding man. At the time, they had no idea that he was God come in the flesh. Questions, comments here? Yes. No, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's it's a great point. Yes. There's. Yes. I think that was for literary effect. Um, certainly not unreasonable to, th- to think that Jesus, the infant, did not cry. Certainly did. Yes. Well, certainly his parents were aware of the prophecy. Um, I mean, presumably, probably for the, <laughs> probably for the sake of, his, of, of the siblings, they, they probably didn't communicate that to their children. I, so, I mean, they didn't, because we see that in John 7 up to this point. Um, now, after his resurrection, right, Jesus, or James, the half-brother of Jesus, was, you know, the, one of the apostles of the church. So they eventually, at least some of them eventually did, but prior to his earthly ministry, there's no hint that they had any idea. And then you might say, well, if he was sinless and he never sinned, wouldn't that be a cue? But I think that we are so clouded by our own sinfulness that even when we encounter people who haven't done wrong to us, we easily assign sinful motives to them. And so they probably, in their own sinfulness, concluded you know, that certain things that Jesus did you know, were, were sinful or motivated by selfishness. They just presumed upon him, so... That probably masked his sinlessness in their eyes. Good questions. Okay, so this brings us to our third point. Jesus was fully human and 
sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. The same could be said of no other human in history. Hebrews 4.14-16 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now at this point, some of us have objected that if Jesus did not sin, then he was not truly human, for all humans sin, to err is sin, to forgive is divine. However, Adam and Eve were created fully human and without sin in the garden prior to the fall. So sinfulness is not a requirement for humanity. Rather, it is a corruption of our humanity. It is a bug, not a feature. To be fully human is to be without sin. It's what was lost in the fall and what will be restored in heaven, our full humanity without sin. So Jesus' sinlessness should not bring into question his true humanity. Another question that's often raised at this point, and you may have wondered yourself, is could Jesus have sinned? Was it possible for Jesus to have sinned? Some Christians throughout the ages have argued for the impeccability of Christ, in which the word impeccable means not able to sin. And then others object that if Jesus were not able to sin, his temptations could not have been real. So with questions like this, it's always good to step back and remind ourselves what Scripture clearly teaches on the matter before we begin to speculate. So what does Scripture clearly teach? First, it affirms, as we read, that Christ never sinned. So we have that to hang on to. Second, it also clearly affirms that Jesus was tempted and that these temptations were real temptations. We referenced Luke 4 earlier. And so if our speculation on whether or not Christ could have actually sinned causes us to deny that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, then we have gone too far and have come to a conclusion that contradicts Scripture. So we cannot go there. Third, we also must affirm with Scripture that God cannot be tempted with evil, according to James 1.13. So while Jesus' humanity was tempted, okay, follow with me on this, his divine nature could not be tempted with sin. Now how these two natures, united in one person, face temptation, Scripture does not tell us. But this distinction between what is true of one nature and true of another nature is an example of, or what is true of one nature and not true of another nature, and is an example of a number of similar statements that Scripture requires us to make. So let's think about this for a little bit. Can anybody think of some examples of what might be true of one nature of Christ uh, is not true of his other nature? Other examples in Scripture. Yes. I, I, I thought that might be... So, Luke, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted. James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted with evil. So, we must affirm that Christ's humanity was tempted while his divinity was not tempted by sin. So, what are some other examples in Scripture of one thing, one aspect of Christ's nature being true while that correspond or while the other nature of Christ is not simultaneously true? Okay. Um, whereas in the situation of being born, obviously Jesus the man didn't always exist. Good. So Jesus is temporal in his humanity, 
right? Luke said that he started his earthly ministry around the age of 30. Um, But Jesus said of himself that before Abraham was, I am. So he is also eternal in his divinity. Yes? Yep. Yep. Excellent. So yeah, so Jesus slept in his disciples' boat. His humanity was sleeping. But Hebrews 1 says that he was upholding the universe by the word of his power in that same moment. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Good. Good. So Christ tempted in his humanity, uh, but not tempted because he is God. What else? Yeah, how so? Yeah, this is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, we referenced that earlier when he said he didn't know the day of his return, even the son doesn't know, or when the the hemorrhaging woman touched his cloak and he said, who touched me, right? So in his humanity, he didn't know, but surely the son of God knew. Um, How about in his omnipresence, Right? So Jesus has returned to heaven and is present with us. So we said earlier that he has a human body. So his human nature ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, but his divine nature is present with us as he promised to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And then maybe the most poignant of all, Jesus, the man, died. Jesus, the God, did not die, right? So here's the summary statement on this topic. Anything that either of Christ's nature does, it can be said that the person of Christ does. So we don't have to parse this at every turn, right? We do, so we don't have to say, Jesus, the man died for your sins, but God, you know, we can say the person of Christ died, Right? It can rightly be said that when the human nature of Christ died, the person of Christ died. When the divine nature of Christ existed before creation, the person of Christ existed eternally. Anything that is done by one nature or the other is done by the person of Christ. So we're back to where we started, hypostatic union, two natures, one person. At this point, we could do no better than to echo the words of the church father Athanasius. Such and so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation that to try to number them is like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves. For indeed, everything about it is marvelous. And wherever a man turns his gaze, he sees the Godhead of the Word and is smitten with awe. I hope that you are smitten with awe, gazing upon the person of Christ. Indeed, the appropriate response upon considering the God-man, Jesus Christ, is to worship.
Any thoughts, questions, comments at this point? Sam. Right. Yes. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, no. Expound. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That, that's great. That's a good, a good point. Um, yeah, to, as far as the hymn, last week I wanted to have Handel's Messiah playing as we walked in this morning. I wanted to have Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery playing as we walked in. Um, but yes, those are, those are both, both points are excellent, well-made points. Um, and it, it should be that way for the finite to ponder the infinite should leave us uh, to some degree in the dark, or else what would it say of what we were comprehending, right? Um, the gap between a two-year-old's understanding of derivative calculus is far smaller than the gap between the finite's understanding of the infinite. So there is going to be mystery. And we mentioned last week, John seventeen three, that eternal life consists in knowing God. So there's a reason that we will be in heaven forever because if eternal life is knowing God and God himself is eternal, how long will it take for us to know that God? Yeah. Eternity. Any other questions before we move on? Okay. So when John the Apostle wrote his first epistle, a heretical teaching was circulating in the church to the effect that Jesus was not man. This heresy became known as docetism. The denial of Christ's humanity was so serious that the apostle called it a doctrine of the Antichrist. So 1 John 4, 2-3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ was come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist. So the apostle understood that to deny the humanity of Jesus was to deny something at the very heart of Christianity. So what is lost if we deny the humanity of Jesus? This will be our last question for pondering today. Or to put it in the positive, why was Jesus' full humanity necessary? So you've got seven reasons. Yeah. He had to die for our sins. 
Yep, absolutely. And we'll we'll look at that. That's extremely important. Um, you've got those seven reasons listed for you in your handout, so we'll go through these. First, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus the Christ, the second Adam. As our first father, Adam is our representative. And of course, he failed. He disobeyed, and as we've noted, we have inherited his guilt and sin nature. That's what we get with the first Adam. But Christ is the second Adam, the true and better Adam, according to Paul in Romans 5. So Sean brought up to him, come behold the wondrous mystery. The second verse says this, come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, listen to the Christology in this, in his living In his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And he had to be a man in order to be our representative and obey in our place. Next, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ, our substitutionary sacrifice, as Joe pointed out. So if Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due to us. Hebrews 2, 14. For surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The words of Hebrews, my emphasis added. Jesus had to become a man, not an angel, because God was concerned with saving men, not with saving angels. Praise God that he was concerned with saving men and that Jesus became a man in order to be the substitute sacrifice on our behalf. Third, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Because we were alienated from God by sin, we needed someone to come between God and us and restore us back to God. We needed a mediator who could represent us to God and God to us. We needed a God-man, and that's just what we got. Fourth, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ our perfect example. Now, many careful Christians will point out that Jesus' life and death was much more than just an example for humans to follow. His death accomplished our redemption, which is certainly true. But while Jesus was more than an example for us, he is never less than our perfect example. As disciples, we are Christ followers. Jesus had to become a man like us in order to set the pattern an example of a life well-lived in obedience to God in every way. Our goal should be to be like Christ in every aspect of our life, all the way to our dying breath, 
like Christ, with strong trust in God and with love and forgiveness in our hearts toward others. So Jesus, our perfect example. Next, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest. Again, the author of Hebrews reminds us that, quote, because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted, Hebrews 2.18. If Jesus had not been a man, he would not have been able to know by experience what we go through in our temptations and struggles in this life. But because he has lived as a man, he is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. So go to him. Sixth, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus had to be raised as a man in order to be the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18, thus setting the pattern for the bodies that we would later have. We now have a physical body like Adam's, a body that is wasting away, but we will one day have one like Christ's incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Take heart. And lastly, Jesus' full humanity is necessary so that we might worship Jesus Christ, the God-man, forever. Jesus did not temporarily become man, Instead, his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature, and he lives forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man who was born of Mary, and as Christ, the Messiah and Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. So this wraps up our two-week talk on the person of Christ. And I hope the two-week focus has served us well to look through the pages of Scripture for a better understanding of the amazing miracle that is the incarnation. And my hope and prayer is that this was more than an intellectual exercise for all of us. I pray that it leads us to worship Christ and to trust Him more and more. Any questions? We have a little bit of time. Not sure how that didn't drag out longer, but did it. So any questions or comments here towards the end? So in, yeah, I think so. Um, so in Jewish culture, the inheritance and the rights and privileges of the father were always passed to the firstborn, right? And such that the firstborn was then responsible to distribute those to his younger siblings. So Christ, as our firstborn, inherited resurrection for our sake, right? Like we taste of the first fruits because Christ was the firstborn from the dead. First in rank, yeah, yeah, and then in Colossians one, um, that in everything he might be preeminent, yeah. 
Yeah. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ, right? They flow through Christ to you and me. Anything else? All right, let's pray and then we'll be wrapped up. Father, our prayer is that you would give us eyes to behold this wondrous mystery that the word of God became flesh and has dwelt among us. That he has come to die in our place to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve and is now resurrected with this physical body reigning at your right hand forevermore. Lord, may this be our hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.